So I think about Jesus, and I think if he were asked the question, what is enough? Well, I think he might answer a question with a question. He might say, well, how much is enough of what? That's Jay Bennett, chairman of the National Christian Foundation and the Halftime Institute, on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast, with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates, and Armin Asadi is not with us today. He is in Africa, and uh, he's on a trip there. We expect to get some good report from him when we chat next week. But I am flying solo today, and I'm so delighted to be able to fly solo with uh, just a terrific guest, a man I've known for a number of years, and uh, and I just really admire his life. I think you're going to learn a lot from our conversation today, and uh, and just hang with it because there's a lot of good nuggets I'm going to share at the end of the episode as well. So for 35 years, Jay Bennett was a corporate lawyer and um, a man invested in a lot of businesses. He's an entrepreneur, a very successful attorney, very successful entrepreneur, and he now serves as chairman of two national Christian ministries, Bob Buford's Halftime Institute in Dallas, where he helps men and women in the marketplace move from success to significance, and he's also the chairman of the National Christian Foundation based in Atlanta. This is the world's largest faith-based provider of donor-advised funds, and it's the eighth largest charity in America. The National Christian Foundation itself serves 17,000 donor partners worldwide and processed a staggering $3 billion of Christian giving in 2017. And Jay is just a remarkable man. He lives here in the Twin Cities with his wife, Sally, and uh, their three married sons and eight grandchildren and all that good stuff. And we're just so happy and so delighted to have Jay Bennett on the podcast. Delighted to be with you today, Larry. Well, I'm so glad to have you in, uh, on this show. And, uh, you know, I've thought about you for a long time and coming on a guest. I know how busy you are. You're the chairman of two very successful national Christian ministries, the National Christian Foundation and the Halftime Institute. Tell us about those organizations. The National Christian Foundation, Larry, is a 36-year-old organization started by Larry Burkett, Ron Blue, and Terry Parker in Atlanta. It's grown over those years to be the eighth largest charity in the nation and is the largest provider of faith-based donor-advised funds in the world behind Fidelity Schwab and Vanguard, which are secular providers. It's the fourth largest overall provider, but the largest faith-based provider. We serve about 17,000 donor partners worldwide to facilitate charitable giving. The Halftime Institute started 20 years ago by Bob Buford. It's a ministry out of Dallas that serves women and men in the marketplace moving from quote-unquote success to significance, encouraging them to find their, what we say is their Ephesians 2.10 calling, that their God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that were ordained for them beforehand, that they might walk in them. So the Halftime Institute and the NCF are two faith-based organizations that I'm greatly privileged to serve in this season of life. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I have a fondness for the halftime work. I read that book when it came out, and um, and, I, and I've read it several, several times. And in fact, spent I think a whole year going through it and trying to work on my own. Well, at the time, I described as a midlife crisis, and um, you know, <laughs> doing some of those readjustments, right? 
And uh, I have to tell you a quick story, Jay, because my wife, uh, I had told my wife even a few years ago, I said, you know, I think I'm having a midlife crisis. And she laughed and she says, you know, you know every year it seems like you're having a midlife crisis. Yes. <laughs> well, many of us go through cycles of uh, yeah. the halftime experience. And I think we're meant to from uh, season to season and from one opportunity to the next. So, yeah. uh, so seeking that is uh, worthwhile. Yeah. So tell us about your own halftime experience. How did you get to connect in with uh, Bob Buford, the Halftime Institute? What what kind of led you from being, you know, maybe jump back to your story. You were in corporate law and doing a lot of business ventures. And let's take us up to the point where you got involved with these two organizations. Yeah, thank you, Larry. I, a uh, business guy, lawyer primarily by trade, uh, started with a big national law firm here in Minneapolis, left at age 30 to stay married and coach Little League football and baseball. Um, and then when no, I wait, was wait, 30, wait. You, you left to stay married. So you, you can't just breeze past that one. Go on. Okay. Yeah. My marriage wasn't in trouble, but I was working a, a whole lot and, uh-huh. uh, I'm thankful for the training I had, but, uh, life includes more than one's vocation. So, uh-huh. uh, I needed a little bit of balance and I needed to focus on things at home. And I had three little boys and wanted to be more actively engaged in what they were doing. And I was a little more entrepreneurial by nature. So the opportunity to create a law firm and then diversify and get involved in business transactions had a lot of appeal to me. So I did that. I actually left the big firm when I was 30. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I was 32 years old, both Sally and I had a powerful spiritual renewal through a weekend experience called Curcio. And that uh, really awakened us back into a more intimate relationship with the Lord through Jesus Um, And that experience and events of 1981 uh, led to the creation of a private foundation in 1983, which supported Christian ministry. So from 83 till 99, basically, I had a kind of a schizophrenic life of doing deals and practicing law and then also serving Christian ministries. And it was schizophrenic in that resources flowed for law and business, but not so much for the Lord's work. Mm. And what was the wake-up call for you then to shift that? In 1999, I was actively engaged in uh, a merger between my best corporate client and its biggest worldwide competitor. And then we went public uh, the following year. And during those months, I worked my tail off, got pneumonia a couple of times, had investment bankers tell me I was needed to go home. I didn't sound too good. And I said, no, I'm not going home. I've got an equity interest in this business. I'm going to stay and make sure the deal closes. And then after the deal closed, I was hit, Larry, with a neurological disorder that took my voice for six years. You mm-hmm. can actually perhaps hear a little raspiness in it even today. Well, I remember I remember meeting you during that time. And, uh, you know, yeah, you you were quite debilitated with your voice, but boy, you, you really leaned into it, though. You know, I think a lot of halftimers and others in life have a rogue event in their life, whether it's a health issue or some other issue that causes them to stop and pause. And as was the case with me, oftentimes these events uh, are not things we can control. I'd historically been able to kind of muscle my way through life's challenges, but couldn't muscle my way through this one. So that six years without a voice was a quiet period in which I took a pretty close look at how I wanted to live on a forward-looking basis. Well, walk us through that six-year period for for a bit. I mean, I love that you you called it a rogue event because that really does. It's like a rogue wave. You just you're not expecting it. It hits you, and then um, and then you have to you have to readjust, right? I mean, so 
you probably went through this period where you're trying to find every solution you could to get back to the way things were uh, as quickly as possible. But what was that journey like for you? How did you deal with that rogue wave to begin with? Yeah, you know, to use my historic power mode, Larry, I traveled the country uh, coast to coast looking for a medical answer to this rare disorder. You know, UCLA and the National Institute of Health, Mayo Clinic, all over the place, uh, finally found a guy in Chicago who injected Botox through the larynx into the muscles behind the larynx that were spasming to cause my vocal cords to pop open. I couldn't push enough air to create sound, and this guy brought some measure of relief. So I, I initially tried to find the best answer possible, and people were praying for me and claiming my healing, which I couldn't quite see. Um, really, I look back to July of 2004, which was three and a half years into the event, mm-hmm. and Sally and I went to The Passion of the Christ, which was Mel Gibson's movie. Mm-hmm. And I watched how Jesus was chastised before he was crucified, how he was tortured. And Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was chastised for our peace. Mm. And I really look back on that event as a place where when I left that theater, I said, you know, if he went through that for me, I'm going to be peaceful. And I had not been able to be peaceful. But that was where I bottomed out. And between July of 2004, when I really submitted to that reality, and November of 2006, the voice gradually came back in many ways, miraculously so, ongoing medical treatments and a lot of prayer. But in November of 2006, the doctor said, hey, Mr. Bennett, on on occasion, the brain quiets down. I don't know if I'm going to see you again. And he hasn't, so I haven't had any treatments since November of 2006. Thank you, Lord. So those six years were quite transformative internally for you, sounds like. Very challenging. I, it was exhausting to create a whisper. I had to try to push sound like playing a tuba. So I would come home physically exhausted and without answers. And yeah, it was an extended season. Thank the Lord I had my dear Sally and she hung in there with me. But it was a very, very challenging time of life. Yeah. And But it sounds like it also brought you to a place of peace. Talk more about that. Yeah, I uh, experienced uh, uh, through submission of my own independence and self-sufficiency and inability to find an answer. I just found a resting place underneath my talents and abilities and thought processes where when I yielded and just gave into the gift that Jesus gave for me in the terms of how he was chastised for my peace, I literally experienced it. I was released from the anxiety of how am I going to make a living? I was released from the tension of the disorder I just physically and emotionally and spiritually got to a platform where I was okay, even if the voice uh, had not been healed. And it was a different place of residence that has been a profound impact for me. And how did that change what you were going to spend your time doing then after going through all that? How did that adjust your priorities? I think it backed me away from the historic reality that I could write points and control decisions and get outcomes that I could identify and kind of beat the competition. But it also, just through the experience spiritually spiritually and emotionally, brought a dimension of my relationship with Jesus into my life, which was so alluring and deeper and meaningful that I wanted more of that. And I historically have come to view that as a 
journey from the true riches of what planet Earth offers into true riches, which are about intimate relationship with the Lord through Jesus. So was that your halftime experience then, would you say? You know, perhaps like you, Larry, I've bounced around through a few halftime experiences, <laughs> but that was clearly the biggest one yeah. where I came out of that season with a deeper awareness that I wanted to have a more balanced life and use the experience I had to serve kingdom purposes in a more profound and dedicated way. And so how did you get connected with Bob Buford then? We actually had put on a conference here locally in November of 2001 on the front end of this challenge where we hosted uh, a number of half-timers and a number of inner-city ministries, two separate events at the Minneapolis Hilton, and Bob came up and spoke. We kind of hit it off, and then he invited me down to Dallas in March of 2002, and that's when I joined his board of directors. Mm -hmm. So you are already well-established with the organization when you, you kind of had this internal epiphany and awakening in some ways, to surrender power for peace. Yeah, I went to many a board meeting between 2002 and 2006 where I was the raspy whisperer with people straining to try to understand what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of opportunity with not only the Halftime Organization, but the National Christian Foundation to be with a lot of people that are moving from success to significance, as Bob would say. What are some of the common challenges that you see for people wanting to do that, to, for people doing what you did, which is to say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop pressing so much into my vocation, and I'm going to start paying attention to the other things in my life that are as important or more so? I think a huge part of it, Larry, is uh, earthly riches, the built-in cultural, psychological, emotional demands on accumulation and success as the world defines it. I think they're actually spiritual obstacles to us uh, seeking greater intimacy with the Lord. But the quest for the American dream and success as the world defines it consumes a whole lot about us. And the halftime journey kind of confronts that in a lot of ways. And it's an interesting integration with the National Christian Foundation because as we come to rebalance our portfolios and think about generosity, it helps lower the barriers that planet Earth puts in our way as we become more generous people, the opportunity to have a more intimate relationship with the Lord increases and the benefits of that. Yeah, I view the, I view the process of journeying from a focus on earthly riches to a more intimate relationship with the Lord, almost like a set of barbells, Larry, where you've got the bar. And then historically, I had a whole lot of weight on one side of the bar and not very much weight on the other side of the bar. So when you try to lift that thing up, it goes one direction. Mm-hmm. As you move through a more generous life and a desire to experience a greater relationship with the Lord, it's like shifting weight off one side, putting it on the other. And as the weight increases in relationship with the Lord, the whole experience becomes more enjoyable and more alluring and ultimately outweighs the benefits that planet Earth offers. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of talk, uh, you know. Bob introduced this idea of success to significance, and I think a lot of people have picked up on it. In fact, we had uh, Aaron Walker speak about that in one of our earlier episodes of the Bold Idea podcast as well. So talk about this, though. Is there a dichotomy here? I mean, is this mutually exclusive? Can one be both successful and significant? You know, if you look at the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, it's a story of the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan, and Moses is telling them, when you get over there, you're going to build big houses and you have lots of cattle and you're going to think you did it yourself. 
And then he goes on in Deuteronomy 8.18 to say, don't, to say, don't forget it's the Lord mm-hmm. who gives the ability to create wealth for his covenant purposes. So these are not mutually exclusive things. Some people have the ability and God-given ability to create wealth, but it's meant to certainly provide for our own. But creatively, and, and the most fun one can have with it is to think about creatively how it can be used to help other people and in particular help them come to know Jesus. And what would you what would you say is kind of a telltale sign that somebody is in this transition period where they where they're really at maybe this halftime evaluation in their life? What what are some of the indicators there that it's time to maybe reassess what you've been pursuing? I think there evolves over time through the experience and the drudgery and the progressive lack of meaning, a sense of discontent in one's life that, you know, is this all there is? Money hasn't made me happy. I've got these issues going on. There's got to be more. That's a trigger, an invitation into the opportunity to kind of go through a process that opens up options. So I do think that there's a, a discontent that often happens with people between the time they're 40 and 65 years old, although I will say that I'm a boomer, but, uh, Many that are Gen X, Gen Y, and millennials want a more integrated life sooner. That's very encouraging. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because it seems like, you know, everything we we read about millennials or even conversations I had with them, you know, I've got, uh, you know, four of them uh, myself, and uh, they all seem to be very purpose-driven. I mean, it seems to be a purpose-driven generation, right? And uh, that would seem to tie in really well with the whole idea of reorienting yourself to a purpose that's greater than yourself. I think many people talk about life as a three-legged stool. you got to have your health, you have to have reasonable finances, and then you have to have purpose. And if any one of those legs is off, you're out of balance. But yeah, absolutely, Gen X, Y, and millennials are looking to integrate purpose in more specific ways. And again, very, very encouraging. Many of us older folks, boomers, certainly my age, follow a more linear path and paid significant prices in terms of relationships and things like that before we got to a place where we had the awakening that is so important to seek a transition. Yeah, so what are the, what are the common things that you hear from millennials today that are asking about these things in terms of, you know, either uh, how you manage your wealth or how you invest or how you should manage your own development of purpose? What are some of the things that you tell them? Yeah, I think that many millennials uh, view the whole issue of generosity quite differently. It's a much broader definition than just financial giving, and so they want to live lives that are generous, generous living, perhaps including generous giving, but the giving aspect is not just financial. A lot of millennials come to view service and neighborliness and other relational realities as part of their own generosity journey. So there's a definite transition away from a more isolated financial view to a more integrated engagement and community view of what it means to live a generous life. Mm -hmm. And and you've had quite a story about your own transformation of your thinking about generosity. How's that changed for you over time? I think the big question to ask along the way is how much is enough? And my experience was anytime I just viewed that from a financial perspective, anytime I hit a target that I thought might be enough, it wasn't enough. Mm. So I think about Jesus and I think if he were asked the question, what is enough? As he often did, I think he might answer a question with a question. He might say, well, how much is enough of what? 
you know, I understand that it's earthly riches in the mind of culture, but what about your relationship with me? What about a sense of intimacy and all the benefits that go along with a closer walk? This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea Podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So if you're the people out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. Jay, when you think about your life and all the things that you've learned, if you had a chance to go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, (laughs) what would you, what what resource would you want your 25-year-old self to have or what advice would you want your 25-year-old self to have? You know, my first thought is a quote from C.S. Lewis, Larry, where he said, the question isn't really what we intend ourselves to be. The question is, what did the Lord intend us to be when he created us in our mother's womb? So at this stage of life for me, I'm looking toward at the end of life. One never knows when that might happen. Um, What's the story that I would hope I could present uh, to the Lord? And then how do I reverse engineer that so that it conforms more closely to what he created me to be in my mother's womb? And I look back and boy, that's been a circuitous diagonal here diagonal there journey so if i could go back 40 years and know that question i think i could seek to have reverse engineer my life earlier and had a little straighter path with perhaps some kingdom impact that uh, hasn't manifested so far so when you say reverse engineer what do you mean by that i mean with where you're at today what what are you going to be doing differently with this idea of reverse engineering The concept is one, as I understand it, where you see a finished product like an airplane and you basically disassemble the thing and take all of its parts together so that you understand how it can be built. So the idea is to look forward in terms of what does the word tell me, what does my faith tell me, what does the Lord tell me in terms of when he greets me at the pearly gates, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and thanks for bringing Larry close to me, or thanks for bringing Susan closer to me. So I think it's a matter of looking ahead and then thinking back and looking at what you're engaged in, uh, not only vocationally, but avocationally in your own faith journey. And how do you embark on a strategic plan for your life that has kingdom impact to it? And if you think about the long-term way to live that out, I think you can get guidance along the way that keeps you uh, more on point. Let's talk about kingdom impact for a minute, because I've always known you as one who, well, you know, I didn't know you in kind of your pre on fire days, right? (laughs) But I've known you as one who's been very intentional about investing in kingdom impact, kingdom development kinds of initiatives. What does that look like? I mean, practically speaking, how would one know whether they're doing something that is leaving a kingdom impact or not? How, How do I know if in the course of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is making any difference there? 
My wife of 47 years prays me out the door every morning, Larry, and she says, uh, follow the cloud and let the mystery do its work. Mm. She prays me out the door that way because she knows historically I haven't done either of those. I've tried to lead and, and I haven't left a lot of room for the mystery to do its work, meaning the spirit to invade and accomplish purposes that are kingdom-minded. I look at investing in the kingdom from both the ROI, a return on investment perspective, using accumulated law and business expertise. I don't want to make bad investments, but very much on top of that, ROI is a KROI, a kingdom return on investment. So how by faith and seeking the Lord can I create space and in investing that I don't control, but I let the mystery do its work. So for me, it's a combination of intellectual and spiritual engagement. And the extent to which I can invest, allowing the Lord to intervene and accomplish his purposes, the greater the returns. So you have to let go a little bit of some of the historic training and by faith be willing to take risks. I don't think he counts up the waste, the dross that may result from what proves to be a bad investment. I think he favors faith in combination with reasonable analysis. Mm. When you look at the next years that you have and the, the efforts that you're putting yourself toward today, what are some of those areas that you're personally investing in? I'm investing primarily at this point in time in the National Christian Foundation and in the Halftime Institute, just because based on my experience, I profoundly believe in the opportunities they have for working with high impact people. Um, so I'm very, very focused on that. The National Christian Foundation is what I call a transactional and a transformational ministry. So we have creative ways to help help people give more generously, but we're also transformational, seeking uh, a journey for them that increases their intimacy. My biggest motivation, quite frankly, is to help people with a more intimate walk with the Lord so that when they meet him at the pearly gates, they're closer to what he created them to be. Mm. Well, this idea of investing in kingdom work. You don't have to be wealthy to do that, do you? We at the National Christian Foundation have a literally an organizational fear of the Lord around the widow's might. Jesus saw the widow at the steps of the temple give more generously out of the little she had than others that gave radically more out of their comfort. So no, one does not have to be a wealthy person financially. It's a matter of the heart and, you know, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And when our treasure is in the Lord and in, in relationship with him, uh, it's not a money question. Uh, it's a question of our devotion to him and how do we live in a generous way. And that can include money, but it can include service and loving people in a variety of ways. So uh, it's available to all. Yeah, so our, well, some of our listeners might be wondering, what are some of the things that they might be able to do to to invest intentionally in kingdom impact? And what, what would some of those suggestions be for them? I think, first of all, to establish the discipline of uh, creating resources that one can give to have a long-range financial plan for oneself and i.e. savings and then to spend the difference. So we, for example, have eight grandkids and we have little mason jars for each of them. And we ask their parents and we make contributions into what they give to the Lord, what they save for longer term purposes and what they're able to spend. So I think developing discipline to 
save and give uh, are things that we can discipline ourselves into over an extended period of time. And then I believe, quite frankly, the Lord calls us to different things. And so making low-cost probes, as we call them at halftime, gee, I could check out this homeless shelter, or I could check out this water opportunity, or I could check out this situation involving an issue. I think we, instead of trying to support 10 or 20 or 30 different causes, can be led to a few causes that the Lord has really placed on our hearts that he would have us serve. So it sounds like getting intentional about how you're going to save and give, as you said, but also then applying that in a way of finding out where you're going to save and give it to using these ideas of probes. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And once again, I think it's a journey. I talk about the road to vertical giving. So much giving is horizontal giving where we give to a nonprofit organization, but then, you know, that can be out of compassion, which is great, but it can fade away. But we can also look at the organization and, gee, I didn't like the sermon last week, or I don't know about their board of directors. I think there's a journey from that kind of horizontal perspective to a vertical perspective where we give because we love the Lord. We know that he loved us so much that he gave. And so when our purpose in giving is vertical to honor the Lord and be obedient, then it flows up to him. And as we honor him with those gifts and then seek places in which we can make distributions. I just think we get a whole lot more insight. It's almost like a rheostat of a light where you turn the dial and the light of the world comes into your life and guides you in ways that are more effective. Mm. So as you think about vertical giving in your own life, what, what's, the, what's the next kind of bold idea that you have for yourself? I progressively just want to give more and more. I have answered the question as to how much is enough. I'm living within my means and I have opportunities or additional wealth creation. I just want to turn it over and progressively, uh, to the extent I'm still in a season of creating wealth, give it away to the Lord and then uh, seek ways through his guidance to make distributions. Um, I like to look for leverage. And so I found with the National Christian Foundation in halftime, a place where the resources that I'm able to invest multiply. So the opportunity to have a 30, 60, 100 fold return on my own investment is uh, very attractive to me. I, I just love, Jay, the way in which you've intentionally designed your, well, really what it, you've said, that the generosity that you've received from God through the sacrifice of Christ, you are giving out uh, through your own uh, resources and finding ways to do that as effectively as possible. And NCF lets you do that. And the uh, Halftime Institute seems like a nice blend for for your gifting in terms of helping people to understand what their purpose is all about. Yeah, I think the mystery has done some work in my life. I never would have thought at this place in life I'd be privileged to serve these organizations as I am, but uh, I'm, I think, humbled by it and very grateful for it. But for me, the, the real key is just seeking intimacy with the Lord, and everything kind of flows from that, mm -hmm. and the earth blockades that in many ways. So how do we break down those blockades and find that intimacy in a way that nurtures the DNA he put in us. Amen to that. Well, amen to that. So how can our listeners find out more about Halftime Institute and the National Christian Foundation? I suppose the cultural response is you can uh, check the websites. They're both very nice websites. They describe the service offerings of each. You can simply Google National Christian Foundation and you can Google the Halftime Institute and the website's absolutely present the nature of the ministry 
Uh, you can read the book Halftime, as you've done repeatedly, Larry. It's really a, a viral book that's gone from place to place. And I'm just really encouraged that younger people are discovering that it's still relevant, but it helps them integrate into a kingdom life earlier in life. And that's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have links to those websites as well on our show notes. And Jay, I want to thank you for being a part of the Bold Idea podcast and sharing your story and also some of the principles that you've learned about, about giving and investing in kingdom development. And just uh, really appreciate you being on the program today. Larry, thanks for your own longstanding commitment to the Lord and kingdom impact and the manner in which you bring differing voices to this podcast process. I'm thankful for our friendship and Pray that the Lord will favor this ministry in many ways. Well, thank you very much, and, and good to talk to you again. Right. Thanks so much. Well, that was Jay Bennett, and uh, as most of our guests, in fact, probably all of our guests, to be honest, uh, you really can't capture the full impact of a person's life in a half-an-hour interview. I wish you could spend uh, as much time or even more than I have with Jay, and you'll um, really appreciate uh, his character and what he's about. But I know Armin's not here to process this with me, but let's uh, try to capture a few things anyway. Here's some takeaways that I have from listening to Jay and interacting with him and also from observing his life. But there's some key takeaways, I think, if we want to make a kingdom impact. We have to, first of all, answer the question that he put out there, how much is enough? And unless we specifically intentionally ask that question and find an answer for it, we will be in the default and our answer will be not yet. It will will always be trying to accumulate more and we'll be in this mindset of accumulation. And so while it's a simple question, I think the question is what is it that we want to accumulate? Are we want to accumulate kingdom impact or are we want to accumulate wealth or resources for ourselves in order to make our lives more comfortable? It made me think about Leo Tolstoy's short story, how much land does a man need? And in that story, he talks about a peasant named Paham who boasts that if he had enough land, he wouldn't fear the devil. So the devil decides to test him. And through several moves to acquire land, Paham visits the Bakshers, whose chief agrees to sell him as much land as he can walk around in the day. The only catch is that he must return to the exact point he started or the sale is off. And so he sets out early in the morning to walk a perimeter and uh, and he decides evermore to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the closing moments of the story here, this is how it ends. Tolstoy writes, again, Pahum remembered his dream and he uttered a cry. His legs gave way beneath him. He fell forward and reached the cap with his hands. Now he's right at the end. He reaches the very end just as the sun was setting. Ah, what a fine fellow, exclaimed the chief. He had gained much land. Paham's servant came running up and tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. Paham was dead. The Bashkers clicked their tongues to show their pity. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Paham to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all that he needed. Tolstoy's story ends answering that in the quest for more and more and more, uh, Paham, the, the peasant, thinking that he could have enough land, he wouldn't fear the devil, and it cost him his life. 
If we don't ask that question for ourselves, how much is enough? It's going to suck the very life out of us. It's just the idea of accumulation. So that's point number one that I got from what Jay was saying. Point number two, kingdom investment is vertical. You remember he talked about taking vertical investments and that requires us to change perhaps the way we think about and solve problems. You remember Jay was talking about when he lost his voice, he went into power mode. That's his default way of doing things is just to lean into it, press, find all the solutions that he can. Jay's a very powerful guy. And uh, as a very successful attorney, as a very successful businessman, he's made a lot of investments. He's made a lot of money. And he's done a lot of that through his own personal power and just using his intellectual acumen, his business acumen, his relational connections, and making things happen. And what he found was that there was a lot of futility in that. And you remember his story going with his wife, Sally, to the Passion of the Christ and experiencing what Christ went through. And he turned from the pursuit of power to the pursuit of peace. And that was a transformational change for him. And, uh, and if we rely on our standard way of solving problems and we don't see the vertical aspect of it and we're only trying to do things out of our own strength very horizontally, we're going to miss the real power of kingdom impact and transferring that idea of moving from power in a horizontal way, I can do things by myself, to this peace that comes from knowing God is the one that has control over our circumstances, over our lives, and uh, we are uh, we are serving him. Third thing in kingdom investment and kingdom impact, I think, is to be forward thinking. Now, you remember he said one of the big things that he is a proponent of is this idea of discipline to save, discipline to save in order to give. And Jay uh, gives annual gifts to his kids and asks them to report on Easter. I happen to know this. It wasn't part of our interview, but I happen to know that he uh, invests in the, the his kids' Uh, donor-advised funds, and then they discuss wh- how they invested that gift uh, around Easter. So they make he makes that investment in Christmas, and they discuss how they've dispersed that investment around Easter. And I, I love that because in whether you are doing that with your kids in a donor-advised fund or you have other ways of doing it, it's basically to say, I'm going to be intentional about how I am going to spend for the purposes of others going forward. And so we have to be forward thinking in that way. And the fourth thing that I picked up from this discussion with Jay was that to make a kingdom impact, we need to be probing. We need to be spirit sensitive, as he uh, said. And you remember his wife, Sally, sends him out with a prayer every, every morning to follow the cloud. And as he said that, I thought about John chapter 3, verse 8 where it says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, you see, that's not just talking about the Spirit. It's talking about the people born of the Spirit. So we can hear the sound of the wind. We can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so sometimes God sends us out. And oftentimes, those of us in the, you know, that have the Spirit... The Spirit is going to lead us on a day-to-day basis, and so we need to be Spirit-sensitive, as Sally was praying for Jay, to follow the cloud. We have to be looking, as Jay is doing in following the cloud, looking for those high-impact opportunities where it may not have even been there uh, yesterday, but it's there for us today. It's right in front of our 
uh, faces because we've been spirit sensitive to what God might be leading. Now, if that isn't exciting, if all that isn't exciting, I don't know what is. But personally, um, I, I love what Jay had to say, and uh, and I think that there's some great takeaways for your bold idea here. Now, Armin will be back with us next week. We'll have another great interview and a great conversation. But until then, we hope that you take a moment Go to our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash six zero. Let us know what you think. We'll have the links to Jay's organizations there. You can learn more about them or you can leave a comment for us there or on our show line at 612-568-IDEA. That's 612-568-4332. And until next week, this is Larry Gates without Armin, but we're saying adieu and we wish you the best and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.